0: Hello, welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast with me, Joe Wisby. I'm delighted to welcome back Steve Matteo to the pod today. This time he's here to talk about his new book, Act Naturally, The Beatles on Film. Steve's book tells the stories of the movies the Beatles made, it places them in their cultural and cinematic context and examines what made them successful. And while we all keep going back to watch these films... Time and time again. Steve Matteo. Hello, welcome back to the Beatles Books Podcast. How are you? Good. It's great to be here again, Joe. Great to have you back. This time we're here to talk about your excellent new book, At Naturally, The Beatles on Film. Last time we spoke, we spoke about your Let It Be book. What made you go back to wanting to write about the Beatles in book form and what was the inspiration to write this book about the Beatles on Film?
1: I had some other ideas from music books through the years. I had a couple of false starts. That's a long story I won't get into here. I really felt like the time was right to do another book on the films. Uh, there hasn't been one in a while. You know, there's been some really good books. Um, the Roy Carr book is a great book. I just felt this was the right time to do it. Uh, the idea came about in the spring of 2019.
0: Was it a difficult book to pull together and, and write? What was the process of writing it like?
1: I mean, I think what I what I did was I kind of looked at what material has come out in the intervening years uh, since the previous books. And I just started looking at that material, you know, DVD and Blu-ray reissues, the vinyl reissues, the CD reissues, the Get Back series coming out, hmm. whatever books were more current, just doing research and just kind of starting in the beginning. I wanted to talk a lot about British films of the 60s. I wanted to put things into context. I thought that was really important. I wanted to give a little prehistory of British film. I thought that was significant because I think some of the other books don't dive as much into the sort of other films and other British films and that sort of thing. So that was kind of important to me. I wanted there to be a lot of context. Uh, I wanted there to be a lot about the people that worked on the films with the Beatles you know, the actors, uh, the people behind the scenes, just the sense of the the sort of 60s British film explosion because, the you know, the Beatles were part of it. And I think, you know, A Hard Day's Night was a very significant film to that. So, you know, context was really sort of the key for me.
0: As everyone listening to this podcast hopefully will know, the Beatles' first film was A Hard Day's Night, which was released in in 1964 Uh, it's interesting because now really in the last kind of 20 years pop groups don't really make films you might get a documentary but the idea of them acting in a film the last one might have been the spice girls spice world maybe maybe one one or two after that but at the time was it inevitable that after they had that success in the uk and then in in america was it inevitable that they would make a film
1: Yes. I mean, the sort of pop phenomenon pre-Beatles, pre-rock and roll was, you know, these sort of pop idols, as you know, like Sinatra would make a film. would That would be the next thing. For them, the idea of doing it just made sense. And, you know, there was the Cliff Richard films, the Elvis Presley films. It was a way to sort of also market them to the world beyond just England. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the significance of it but obviously they were not going to go along with just doing things the conventional way and that's why a hard day's night turns out the way that it does and thankfully the people that were surrounding them who were you know who made the film particularly Dick Lester like you said there really it really isn't a thing these days and i think that's because visual media is so much part of pop music from the start what people in pop music what they look like what their look is Uh, their persona, it's almost like that comes first and the music comes second.
0: So before Hard Day's Night, did they get close to making any other films? Were there there any approaches through 63 that they might have featured in any other kind of film?
1: I don't think anything ever really came close. I mean, The Yellow Teddy Bears, which was a film that was made, but made without them, uh, was something that they probably thought about for about five minutes. All of these kinds of films were like, this sort of let's put on a show films or like there was some sort of goofy cooked up story. And then the band would come on at the end and play at the school dance. I mean, it's silly kind of innocent kind of 50s, 60s kind of mentality. So the Beatles were not going to have any part of that. I think with the yellow teddy bears too, I think the producers wanted the Beatles to relinquish their songwriting rights they, they wouldn't get the publishing rights of the songs. And the Beatles were definitely not going to go along with that. Mm. So I think there was talk of of them doing some kind of, I don't know if it was a documentary or it was more of a filmed concert or film performance with Giorgio Gamowski, who would go on to work with the Rolling Stones and the Yardbirds and was somebody that wasn't a film and used pop music he thought he was going to use it as a way to get into film you know in a big way so there was this intermingling at the time of pop music and film movies is all part of this sort of the sort of show business kind of thing
0: so you mentioned him him earlier and um he's a a key character in in the whole book for obvious reasons and that's that's Dick Lester, who again, hopefully everyone knows direct the first two Beatles films and directed John in in How I Won the War. Dick Lester is such a an interesting character really in the in, in the story and, and in your book. How did he become involved with the Beatles? Was he always going to be someone that was that was going to direct Hot Days Night?
1: You know, I think that what his sort of resume was up until that point was sort of perfect. Because he did the running and jumping and standing still film, working with with Peter Sellers and establishing this kind of surreal kind of filmmaking style. And then he did It's Trad Dad, which is, it's a music film. So he kind of learned to do that. And then The Mouse on the Moon, I believe, was the, the film that he did, which was his first sort of feature length film fictional film and that kind of established his creed as a film a feature film director and he worked with Walter Shenson so Shenson becomes the really the conduit to the Beatles Shenson becomes the producer he really selects Lester but then the Beatles approve of Lester they're happy with him they like him the fact that he was a jazz pianist uh, he had a musical background. He was a very intelligent man. I think the, the Beatles and you know much of the British acts of the time were enamored with Americans, everything American, the music, the films, the clothes, the big cars. So here's this guy. I mean, he's perfect. If you wanted to cast the perfect guy to be the director for the first two films, it's Dick Lester.
0: Why do you think they liked him? What was it about him as a a person that they they related to and they got on with so well?
1: Well, he was a smart guy. He went to UPenn, which is an Ivy League college in America. Like I said, he was a musician. He was an accomplished jazz pianist. I don't think he was necessarily a professional at it. He worked with Peter Sellers. I mean, that is almost like if he just did that, (laughs) that would almost be enough. The Beatles adored Peter Sellers. It all kind of lined up. I'm sure that they had to like him sitting in a room talking to him. So I wasn't there. I wasn't privy to that. But obviously that worked. The rest, as they say, is history.
0: So let's talk a little bit about Hard Day's Night now. I mean, it's such an adored film. What was Dick's contribution to to Hard Day's Night? What did he bring to it kind of stylistically?
1: Well, I think the sort of the black and white of the running, jumping, and standing still film, that kind of look, I think is initially part of it. And then his his background as a film director, that sort of quick cutting and movement, the the energy of it, the people who were making commercials at that time were almost more artistic than people who were making films at that time. You know, the whole idea of making a commercial, obviously, too, is you do it, you know, one, two, three, bang, 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 and you get it out. It takes a long time to make a film. I think there was a sense of the sort of documentary style of television. You probably saw more documentaries on television than you did in the movies. So there was that where he uses that sort of pseudo style. And I think he was open to doing something different. He didn't he didn't want to make, you know, let's put on a show. He didn't want to do that. He was a young guy. He was smart uh, he's very much into this you know surrealism he wanted to do something different I think he wanted to um, he wanted to show them I think too I think he I think he tucked his ego away and he said I'm not gonna be the director crack the whip and show off here I'm these four guys are just incredible and I want to put them up on the screen and I think he in- intuitively, Figured that out i mean it it didn't take much to figure that out regardless of the music they were these amazing personalities that the world had not seen these four guys not one or two these four guys there's this chemistry obviously that they have the four of them that you can't you can't cook that up you can't replicate that you know it's just there they're all from liverpool they all grew up nearby They're, they're almost identical age it's It's a sort of perfect confluence of sort of cultural explosions ricocheting off of each other. I mean, this is just at the the moment where British films are becoming significant. You know, obviously, Hollywood was always the place where film was significant. Mm. And then post war, I think you you be, you know Italy and France become key places where important movies are made, you know, also fashion photography style design. I think Sweden to some degree also. I think, you know, with Ingmar Bergman. So this is just at the moment where British film is exploding and taking off with writers, directors, cinematographers, particularly the actors, people like Peter Sellers, Peter O'Toole, Richard Burton. Julie Christie, Sean Connery, Michael Caine. I could go on for the whole show. There's all of this talent all in one place, all young and just about to hit the mainstream at the same time. The James Bond films, the Spy Spoofs, the stage was set with the sort of kitchen sink films. You know, we quickly go from this sort of stark black and white kitchen sink films to these colorful bubbly effervescent swing in London it's a quick leap from 64 to say 65 66 it happens really quickly and it's all happening in London is the center of it and it's interesting you've got these people who are not Brits or don't live in the country who are going there to make films Stanley Kubrick was already there, and he's an American. He was already there making films pre-Swing in London, pre-British invasion, pre-British explosion. You've got people like that. that you know, you, you get Jean-Luc Godard goes and works there. You get Michelangelo Antonioni goes and he works there. Like They all see that this is where the energy is. Previously, it was very much the French New Wave or like... Fellini, you know, La Dolce Vida, it's you know, very much all of those people, which I and I get into all of this in the book, as you mm. know from reading the book. I mean, I really I, I wanted to create context. I wanted people to have an understanding that, you know, as much as the Beatles were extraordinary and as much as Dick Lester was extraordinary, that there was already a sort of an infrastructure in place that the wave was moving that way. And in many ways they they were part of. And we're influenced by the wave at the same time. It's interesting how these things happen, these sort of these cultural moments. I mean, I think unfortunately, we live in a time now where we don't get these cultural moments that are so seismic. I think that you, you can sort of go from the Beatles exploding in 64, okay, to say the last waltz. Martin Scorsese's The Last Waltz, because at that point with The Last Waltz, then you sort of have almost simultaneously punk and new wave exploding, which is completely different, but in many ways almost going back to the beginning. The punk thing sort of says, okay, we've gone this far. Now we have to tear the wall down completely and we have to start all over again, you know, because A Hard Day's Night is this black and white, pseudo-documentary, energetic, quick-cutting, frothy, pop confection. And The Last Waltz is this lush color, grandiose. It's almost like you're watching an Italian film, an opera an opera. And they used sets from the San Francisco Opera for The Last Waltz for the staging at Winterland. That's a short period of time. I mean just to go from, from the beginning of the Beatles to the end of the Beatles that 60s, the change on so many levels.
0: So, as as I said about Hard Day's Night specifically, it's definitely the Beatles' most beloved film. What do you think is the key to that? Why do you think it's the film that they made that is the one that has kind of lasted the best? It, It still feels so fresh. It still feels so now. It still fills you with excitement as that first chord strikes and the Beatles come dashing towards you down Boston Place as they go into Maryland Bourne Station. How does it manage to retain that that energy?
1: I mean, I think it's the film that most reflects them at their best. You know, when they were together, they were a group, they were happy, they were exploding on the scene. Hard Day's Night is the first album that John and Paul wrote all the songs. This is really where they've come into their own. And and they are now hitting a stride. You could argue that the next few albums help, and Beatles for Sale maybe take a little bit of dip in quality. Really, this is like the first peak, and it's a it's a black and white film. I think black and white films sometimes tend to hold up better. They just look great. They don't have the color films today. For me, are so sort of flat and static, and there's no shadows and light. It's just, it's beautifully photographed. The person that was the cinematographer for A Hard Day's Night was the same person who was the cinematographer for Dr. Strangelove, speaking of Stanley Kubrick and Peter Sellers. Dennis Odell of Apple Films, you know, famously has said that while A Hard Day's Night and Help might have been these kind of just, you know, low rent pop movies, the people who worked on those films. Were top caliber film people, the c- cinematographers, camera people, sound people, the actors—you've got quality people making what, on the surface, is a sort of pop music, pop phenomenon vehicle.
0: So, after Hard Day's Night, after that success, after this film that's adored at the at the box office, it's loved critically. We come to Help which was, most of us will know, came out the following year in, in 1965. It's a very quick turnaround when you think about it. I, I suppose the first question is, why do you think they felt the need to make another film so quickly after Hard Day's Night?
1: Well, I think that that's Brian and just the way that things were done. Okay, so we're finished with the album. Okay, so now we go on tour. Okay, so now we make a movie. Okay, so now we make an out. Al- you know what I mean? It was this like... That was just the next thing you did. There's kind of two things going on. There's this sense of one, how long will this go on for? So we have to sort of milk it. Mm. And I don't think Brian was looking to necessarily milk it like other managers were. But then there's also just this sense of that's just what you did. You kept busy. You worked. You did things. There was the, the, the sort of work ethic was sort of extraordinary. You know, later on in the world, it would take forever to make a record. It would take forever to make a movie. Tours with world tours could go on for years. So there was just the sense of going from one thing to another. I'm sure in hindsight, the Beatles are probably sorry that they so quickly did help. Mm-hmm. I mean, once they were making it, I think they really were sort of like, yeah, we don't want to do this. <laughs> and they were indulging in the pleasures of tea quite a bit while they were in the Bahamas making the film, maybe even in Austria also. I mean, they were kind of checked out at that point. And I, but I I don't think Richard Lester had a problem with that. I think the whole idea was well, we can't do another A Hard Day's Night. So we need some kind of framework to make, you know, an actual feature film. We're going to shoot it in color. We're going to expand the cast. And the cast is going to be more significant to the whole film. And so that's kind of what happens. And obviously the spy thing was was easy to sort of well we'll just kind of do this but i mean there was a lot of a lot of other influences i mean there was a there was a lot of different ideas that was sort of batted around there's sort of the sense that it was heavily influenced by the wilkie collins novel the the moonstone Mm -hmm. i mean you can see some of the parallels i mean i don't think that they were remaking it obviously but it just becomes a question of okay let's make another movie. It did well. It made a lot of money. The soundtrack, you know, sold bushels. Let's just do it again. I mean, th- there wasn't a lot of thought back then. And again, I don't mean that positively or negatively. It was just a question of that's sort of how things were done.
0: You mentioned the spy thing there. Bond is a huge influence on help. And I suppose it's the other big cultural icon of that of that time. What? Why do you think they went down that route. Was that a Dick Lester idea or was that coming from other from the writers or where does that come from?
1: I think it was fairly collective. Alan Owen was not used again as the screenwriter. Although Lester, I think, was somewhat happy with the script, I think in retrospect, I think he felt he d- didn't want to work with that screenwriter again, that he wasn't necessarily happy with him. More in retrospect, I believe. And so... Bond is the other sort of British phenomenon that places England, London in the center of the cultural universe at this point. Interestingly enough, both Beatles films and the Bond films from United Artists, not a coincidence. Uh, And I get into this in depth about United Artists. It was very much a unique sort of film studio. In many respects, it really wasn't a studio studio. It was more of a, a state of mind and a way to do things and a way to make movies. And I, I think that I quote an interview, not that I did, but an interview with David Picker of United Artists. And he talks about, I'm just paraphrasing. He basically said, you know, we hire good people and they stick to the budget and we leave them alone and they make good movies. And I know that's just oversimplified. Mm. You have to remember, too, back then, it, you know, making a movie wasn't what it is today. What are they spending on movies these days? Millions. So you have smaller budgets, and you can be more nimble. You can make movies and get them out there. I think back then it was just you know things happened quicker.
0: So help then same director, same four stars, bigger cast, bigger budget, but held in nowhere near the the same esteem as Hard This Night is. Most people listening to this will still love it. I still. It on, I still love it when they walk into that, that house at the beginning and it's the one giant house. It's just that was actually what got me into the Beatles. Help was the film that I watched when I was eight years old when it was broadcast in 1992 on what would have been Paul McCartney's 50th birthday. I watched it on channel over here itv on a Sunday afternoon and that scene of them walking in the house I was like this is the coolest thing in the world who are these people I want to to be around them just forever and ever and ever and here I am still around them now so there are lots of things that work in help but it isn't held in that in that same esteem as Hard Day's Night why do you think that is do you think there was that there's a lot wrong with help
1: well I think unfortunately there's a saying that lightning tends to only strike once and I think that was the case with A Hard Day's Night. You know, there was there was this sort of talent behind it, but there was also, like I, like I sort of illustrated before in detail, this sort of confluence of all these things just going the right way. I think when they got the help, I think that, you know, there was a certain amount of the bloom was off the rose of the sort of innocence of the period was starting to fade. And I think that they had to create a product, essentially. We've got to make a movie. And we got to do it fast. You know, it becomes like the old second album syndrome too. You wait your whole life to make your first album and you you, you put all of that into it. And then before the first album is even out, you're on to the next one. So it's never going to be the same. You know, if film is a collaborative process, you know, the Beatles had very little, if any, control over it, over help. I think they just sort of went along with it. And I think there was a sense of... Yeah, when we're done with this, we're not making another movie again. I agree with you like when I watch it we, and obviously I rewatched it, you know, to write the book, it's great. I mean, I love it. It's so much fun. The music is so great. Ringo is just truly a star mm-hmm. at this point. It's just fun. It's just a it's a fun it is very like a spy movie to see. I have a real soft spot for 60s spy films. How I look at uh, help! I'm I'm probably a bit more predisposed to enjoying it because I'm such a fan of spy films of the '60s, mm. the British films, the British spy spoofs. I mean, it is a spy spoof, so you know that's that's kind of what it is.
0: So, so as you say, they decide not to make another film. They are presented with quite a few ideas through '66 to '67, but they they don't make another film. Do you think that was mainly down to the fact that they didn't enjoy help? Did they get close to, to making anything in 66?
1: I mean, I think there were ideas that were batted around that, you know, they might've even considered a talent for loving, which was a Western. I think there was some real interest in that. I think Ringo and maybe George to some degree were fans of Westerns. So the idea of being in a Western and, and kind of being able to step out of their personalities I think that was somewhat appealing to them, but I think at this point too, you the music is be, is deepening at this point. When you're talking about 65, 66, five, sixty six, you're talking about Rubber Soul and Revolver, particularly Revolver. That's a landmark album. You know, I, I, as you know, some people think that is their best album. To tear themselves away from writing and recording to go make another goofy movie, I think the idea of it is sort of like we don't want to do this. This is London's becoming hipper and hipper and hipper. They would be taking more of a gamble, I think, on their image and their persona and their career by making, uh, you know, just another sort of film that they're just actors in. You know, it becomes a thing too. You know, I don't even know if I get into this in the movie, but in, in my book rather, but if you decide to make something like a talent for loving a western, I think later on there's interest in doing a Lord of the Rings. Do you make music for it? Do mm-hmm. the Beatles make the music? Or do they decide, no, we, we're not going to do that? And then how do people feel about, yeah, there's a new Beatles movie. Oh, great. There's no Beatles mu- music in it. Well, maybe I don't want to go see that. If they have to just stand on their own as actors in a Western, for example, and there's none of their music in it, that could be a huge flop. You know, Don't forget, they're not recording artists that long at this point. It's still new. You know, it's only a few years, really. So I just think that they're deeper into developing their songs and developing being recording artists and having more control over their recordings at this point, too.
0: The other one, of course, is the Joe Orton film up against it that was that was never made. I suppose they were always going to go down that that kind of route if they were going to make anything in, in 66.
1: I don't think they were ever going to make that movie. Once Brian saw that script, it was sort of like, it was just a little, a little too raw. Mm. And I think when Orton wrote it, I I don't think he was thinking of the Beatles. (laughs) I think he just wrote it and then thought, well, I'll just try to pawn this off on the Beatles. You know what? You know what happens is when you're the Beatles or anybody at this point, you have so much clout Mm -hmm. and everybody wants to work with you. And you want to work with whoever the newest, coolest, shiniest, hippest person is. And he was at that point. It's interesting that they gravitated towards writers who were playwrights. They weren't necessarily screenwriters. You know, Alan Owen, Joe Orton. I mean, obviously, we have Broadway in in America, but the theatrical tradition in the United Kingdom, I think, you know, in London, England, I mean, is stretches back to Shakespeare. There's a richness and a depth to it and an infrastructure. As
0: 1967 kind of moves to a close, the Beatles then undertake this kind of crazy, what Paul calls in the anthology, a crazy roly poly 60s idea, which is to make Magical Mystery Tour, which uh, I know you've discussed on another podcast, but we'd like to talk about it here as well. It kind of comes at this weird time, Magic Mystery Tour, because it, Brian's gone and that they're still close or are they close? There's all sorts of stuff going on. A question that I've sort of always wondered about Magic and Mystery Tour is what were they trying to achieve? What was the end game? What was the idea behind making this clearly surreal film?
1: I don't think they know. I think it really was just we're going to make this film because we're the Beatles and we can do whatever we want. And I think it was kind of Paul's idea. Paul was a, he was a very creative guy who his creativity, I think, extended beyond, you know, songwriting and performing and recording. I think he really was interested in, in art and theater and film. He's really a polymath in a lot of ways. He's really just, uh, he's a sponge He's got a very busy, active mind, and he likes to keep working and being creative. And I think that he felt like, I think he was seeing around him people making more sort of interesting films. And there was avant-garde films and underground films, and he saw how the visual medium was meshing and melding and complementing pop music or rock music, if it had become that at that point. And so I think he figured, well, why don't we do this? It was that simple. And I think that the idea, while it was progressive and avant-garde, this sort of concept of let's go on a holiday coach journey was a throwback. And I, I think this is always one of the great things about John and Paul when they were writing songs and conceiving albums was they were always looking forward and they were always leading the way but they were steeped in prior creative traditions of whether it was music or movies, theater. I mean, you look at their early pre-songwriting performances, it wasn't just American rock and roll or or American r and B. I I mean, they were steeped in the great American songbook, in theater, in old-timey jazz, or whatever the case may be. So they had this sort of education. They had this upbringing. It's a very rich kind of upbringing. You know, the whole sort of people in England at the time who would have the piano in the house or a guitar or a ukulele and make their own music. Or you go down to the pub and somebody's at the piano and everybody's singing along. There's this, they, they grow up with that. So there's this sense of it's fun to them. It's family. It's, it's their culture. I think that they that's that's what they wanted to do. I don't think they necessarily had the the entire sort of what is the end game or what is the finished product going to look like. It's obviously not a linear film. It's basically set pieces and it's it's very much sort of they're not realizing it, but they're taking those promotional clip ideas that they'd already started doing with various people and expanding on it very much with being influenced by various substances Mm. and it isn't just the typical sort of you know like they would do clips i guess with michael lindsay hogg or various people various directors silly little things where they would just be in a studio holding an umbrella or whatever you know they wanted to take that to the next step i think there's some of the sense too of well we can do better than that I think there was always this sense that they felt like they could do better, whether it was music or, or movies. And well, it didn't quite turn out that way with magical mystery tour, at least initially.
0: So as you say, yeah, the reception was pretty savage. And on the episode that I did last month, I spoke to Leslie Cavendish, who was the, it was Paul's hairdresser and was on the magical mystery tour us and he said that Boxing Day, as you can imagine he sat in front of the TV and with his mum and dad and watched this new Beatles film and he said I couldn't believe it was in black and white I could not believe it was in black and white I, I couldn't believe it was on at that time do you think that the fact it was in black and white and the scheduling, BBC One Boxing Day just I think it might have been just before or after a Norman Wisdom film it was in the wrong place, do you think that contributed to the negative reaction that it got.
1: Yes, and it being shown a few days later in colour, it got a little better reception. But yeah, sure. I mean, it's Christmas, it's Boxing Day, it's family, it's family entertainment. Uh, so here's these freaky Beatles. The TV screens, remember, were about the size of microwave ovens at that point too. Mm. I mean, if, if it had come out and you watched it on a 46-inch colour television... And it was maybe a few weeks later, it might've been different. Or if it was shown, it was rolled out slowly in the movies at select theaters or college campuses or something, whosever idea it was to put it on Boxing Day, it just kind of happened. I think it was more of a question of, well, it's the Beatles, so we'll put it on the day after Christmas. I'm sure everyone's going to love it. We don't have Boxing Day in America. Okay, We should. I'd like to see that. Over the years, obviously, it's looked at very differently. You know, when I first saw it, it was part of the the sort of 1970s midnight movies, cult movies, underground movies. Everyone was indulging in tea in the 70s. So that's how we saw it. And we saw it up on a big screen in a movie theater. And yeah, it was still weird. It was still like, yeah, this is weird. (laughs) It's like... And it isn't necessarily weird because it's weird. It's weird within the context of you're used to watching linear films. Okay, so by the '70s, film had changed. You know, Easy Rider is kind of the I think the the commercial sort of moment when film changes, and it becomes very much youth culture, '60s culture, hippie culture, whatever you want to call it. It, It's movies for that generation, the baby boom educated generation. So. I think as you get older and you watch it numerous times and you learn more about it and it becomes less weird through time because we've lived through MTV and we've lived through David Lynch and I could go on and on. It's such great music. I mean, I think that that helps it along, too. It's just it's a wonderful soundtrack, Mm. even though it was kind of cooked up by Capitol Records, the long playing record as opposed to the EP.
0: Just a, a a quick word on on Yellow Submarine, the animated film. The Beatles had a sort of a minimal involvement, really, in it. They didn't do their own voices. There is that wonderful kind of couple of minutes at the end when they, they appear. Why weren't they involved more in it? Was it just a scheduling thing, or do you think they didn't have much faith in what this animated film was going to be?
1: Well, it was the same people who produced the Beatles cartoons, and they didn't like the Beatles cartoons. Rightfully so, they were rushed. There was not a lot of continuity with them because they were done by a lot of different people. Their voices were not used. The characters were kind of frozen in time. It was very much the mop top Beatlemania. Hmm. Beatles. It was not shown in the in the UK. They just wanted nothing to do with that, especially as you, as they're progressing along, as they're progressing through sixty five, sixty six, sixty seven they want nothing to do with this kind of thing. And they don't want to waste songs on it either. You know, they don't want to have to give up songs for some animated movie that might not be any good. Now, once they saw what it was going to look like and they met the people who were making it, they completely changed their minds and they really loved it. And they wish that they had become more involved. It didn't change the amount of music that they supplied the new music, but, um, I mean, I think it's it's held up remarkably well over the years.
0: So, just to kind of conclude, we last time we were here, we we spoke a lot about, about Let It Be, the film and the album uh, in relation to your Lark's book, and we spoke a lot about Get Back. We, Get Back was quite fresh then. I think it was it was that that year. I'd only been out for a, a few months, so here we are a, a little bit later. I thought I was thinking about what what to talk about in relation to Let It Be, and I suppose. An interesting idea, an interesting question might be that, as we're speaking now, the original Michael Lindsay hogg film is not available, despite talk of it being re-released at the same time as Get Back. We spoke about the non-existent DVD that was due out of Let It Be in 2002, 2003. Do you think that now that's it for Let It Be? Do you think it will ever be available again? And do you think that that's, that's kind of good or bad?
1: I don't think we're done with it at all. I think that this is just a situation where there's all four Beatles or the estates of the Beatles always have something new, whether it's Paul and Ringo making a new album. I think Paul, I think he'll make more albums, maybe. And all the reissues from the solo artists. And then the various reissues, I'm going to guess Rubber Souls next. So I think at some point, someone is going to finally say okay yeah we should put let it be out on blu-ray streaming i would hope it's done sooner rather than later i think michael lindsey hogg deserves his due for what he did with it regardless of what there is critical to say about it as a film i also think that you have the rooftop concert has not been released on cd uh blu-ray vinyl they did the um What was it? The IMAX of just the rooftop concert, very limited release. So that's not out on DVD or Blu ray or streaming. I think they released just the audio of the rooftop concert on streaming, which is great. You have to remember, too, now we haven't had a reissue recently of the Yellow Submarine album. We haven't seen that as far as there being, you know, like extras and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, we've had. CD and vinyl reissues of it, but nothing with extras or anything. And that goes the same for Magical Mystery Tour. We did get a box set of the Blu ray and the DVD and the, and the EP, but we haven't had any extras or any of that. There's a lot of extra material audio from that period. You know, the incidental music that's in the movie. That's not the Beatles. That's another thing, you know, help. There's never been any kind of expanded help package in terms of there has been for the film with a you know the script and the posters and but in terms of audio we haven't seen anything and a hard day's night there's so much still that has yet to come out look Shea Stadium Mm. is not officially available I didn't put Shea Stadium in the book you know I thought about it and I said yeah you know it's it is a television show that people say, well, Steve, so is Magical Mystery Tour. Mm. But Magical Mystery Tour had a life as a film. Mm. And the Shea Stadium has never – has it ever been officially released at all? Did it even come out on VHS?
0: I, that's a good question. Someone listening will know the answer to that. I i mean, I've, I've got a bootleg of it behind me, which is – Yes,
1: that's what I have. I, I don't have got- a –
0: it's got the an original version of the film, and then someone's edited in the bits in the anthology. So you get a lovely well, it's not that great, oh. but it's a better version of the because obviously it is okay. used at the start of the fifth episode of the anthology quite extensively. But yeah, I don't think it's ever been officially released. Uh, when they did the eight days a week film, Ron Howard film, when I saw I saw that in cinema and they showed it straight after, that would have been a good time to release it eight days a week was the touring years and Shea stadiums kind of the peak of the touring years in a lot of ways. So that would have been a perfect time to release it and, and tie it in with the, with the film, but that didn't happen. So yeah, you're right. There's so much still amazingly. There's so much that we'd all still love to see. Uh, And
1: I understand why, why there's been reluctance to put out the Shea stadium from what I believe, and there are people who know more about this than I do, obviously, is that there there's a lot of sort of overdubbing, and there's a lot of, a lot of it is not really live, quote, unquote. So, and you know what, if it's transparent that that is the case, and I imagine now with all of this new technology that, you know, Giles has been using for a while now that Peter Jackson uh, and his team have contributed greatly to, is maybe there's a way to go back and make it more live, and and you know they did this with the um, the Hollywood Ball stuff. They did a great job with that. Mm. So I would love to see it. I'm interested in anything, yeah. <laughs> whatever they whatever they want to put out, whatever's in the vaults. There's different ways to do it. I know that some people they've had their criticism of some of the different packages. Obviously, with the last package, there was no Blu-ray of any mm. kind, no Blu-ray audio. I mean, that was a little disappointing. There was no 5.1, I believe. Some of the packages, one came with a book and the other didn't. So if you wanted the book and you wanted the vinyl, you had to buy both. You know, you can't please everybody. I understand how they, you know, they try to do these things in a way that makes sense. I think that over the years, obviously, the repackaging and the reissuing of everything Beatles has only gotten better over the years. I think that anthology was the sort of starting point where they really started to hit their stride was with the Sergeant Pepper 50th anniversary. I mean, I think that's really where we've been. And I think Giles Martin has done a great job. I had a chance to go to the um, rolling out to the press in New York of revolver back last September. And Giles was there. I had a chance to go, I had a chance to meet Giles for the first time. I had interviewed him when the um, eight days a Week came out. But we d- that was not done in person. He's a great guy, and he's the right person to be curating this stuff. And I know everybody drives him crazy with, are you going to do this? Are you going to do that? Giles, why don't you do this, Giles what? And Giles is he's also very you know he's very industrious. He's very he, he fits right in with the sort of work ethic that his dad had that Paul has. and he just did the pet sounds where he remixed it for uh, Dolby Atmos. You know, not for physical media, or at least not yet. Mm. But I'd be anxious to hear that. I'm a big Brian Wilson Beach Boys Pet Sounds fan.
0: But yeah, you're right. I think the more more Beatles is the way to go. We just we just all want more Beatles. I think that's uh that's a good way to finish. So Steve, thank you so much for coming back on. The book is at naturally The Beatles on Film. Yeah, thanks so much. Sure. It's great to be here.